You're listening to Podcasts with Park Rangers, a show where we explore the importance of our national parks and historic sites with those who live and work in them every day. We'll learn about history, science, and the beauty of nature from a unique perspective. I'm your host, Lucas VK. Today we interview Ranger Aaron Kay, a supervisory park ranger at Badlands National Park. You know, I think after moving so much as a as a kid and then even as an adult, as a seasonal, this is, I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else my entire life. So again, like I said, it feels like home. I certainly wouldn't have said that before I got here, but I always thought the mountains were my home. And I still feel that, but it's different now. Both my parents are proud of what I've done and the life I've decided to choose as a professional. I feel lucky. I've had a lot of opportunities. Stay tuned. We'll talk about fighting forest fires, search and rescue, and what it's like to grow up in the national parks. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon Fan of the Month, Valerie from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, home to Jean Lafitte National Historic Park and Preserve. If you'd like to be considered for Fan of the Month and be mentioned in a future show, find our Patreon page in the show notes or visit podcastswithparkrangers.com. At Badlands National Park, we intended to do just one, maybe two, interviews. But that all changed when we met Ranger Aaron Kay. We couldn't pass up sharing his unique story. You see, Aaron grew up with the national parks as his backyard. Because his father was also a park ranger. What would that be like? Would it change how you view the world? Would you view the national parks differently? We had so many questions about life as a kid in the parks because just being a park ranger is already a different lifestyle. Some rangers move around a lot and live in extremely remote places. And as you can imagine, this takes some adjustment. But what if it's the only life you've really known? And so we sat down with Ranger Aaron to find out more about his story. On behalf of the National Park Service, I'd like to welcome you both to Badlands National Park. My name is Aaron Kay. Ranger Aaron has been with the Park Service for 27 years and started as a seasonal ranger just after college. So I started in the summer of 91 after graduating from college at Boulder with a degree in anthropology and immediately went to Mesa Verde National Park. Um, I had an emphasis in college of Southwest archeology span and had done some field work in that area, so I was quite familiar with that particular resource. So I was picked up a little bit late in the season um, in June and started working at Mesa Verde. Back then, they didn't have the same rules they have for personnel that they have now as far as length of season and things like that. It was a little bit different. But I also, in between seasons, was a volunteer, and I stayed there for basically four years. And then one season, winter season, went out and worked at Hovenweep, which was a really interesting experience out there. One of Aaron's park ranger goals was to work in Yellowstone, and after his stint in the desert southwest, he finally got his wish. Um, Yellowstone, since I had grown up, you know, in the park service, Yellowstone was a place that I always wanted to go. I had a 3D map on my wall of Yellowstone, and I always dreamed of going there. We never went as a kid. We visited a lot of different national parks, but we never went there. So Yellowstone was quite an achievement for me and a really exceptional experience in a resource that I was pretty familiar with after living in Rocky for years as a kid. Ranger Aaron started at the Badlands in 1999 and has been with the park ever since. 
His first day was one he'll never forget. I arrived March 28th of 1999. Okay. And right after I got here, we had a three-day blizzard that took down power poles along 44, and the power was out for several days. Oh, boy. So that was my first introduction to the extremes of the South Dakota weather. Yeah. Um, I've seen temperatures as low as 22 degrees uh, below zero ambient air temperature. Uh, and the hottest temperature I've ever seen here was 118. Oh, boy. So there's some pretty extreme weather Wild fluctuations, fluctuations yeah. here in this area. Yeah. So, and, you know, one of the things that was interesting for me when I first got here is I've lived most of my more of what I would call adult life in the mountains mm-hmm. and always been really good out outdoors trying to orient myself, know where I'm going, recognize a tree or a rock and be able to get myself back, you know, those kind of things. And I got here and there wasn't anything to orient yourself on really, <laughs> you know, flat landscape. You could see forever. Right. And it took me a few months to be able to figure out, you know, to just kind of mentally go, okay, that's North. Okay. That's South, you know, and then start to pick up the subtleties of the landscape, right. Which help you to see what direction you're looking, where you're going, those kind it's of very things. very different from that Rocky mountain region, which yep. I'm familiar with always having that frame of reference yep. to the West. Yep. Right? If you're on the, the Eastern and front even, range. Yeah. And even yeah. when you're in, in the mountains itself, you pretty much know what direction the canyons and you know, running and where the mountains are in respect yeah. to where you're located, those kind of things. But out here, there's a few features you can see and they're pretty, they're pretty distinct to me now, but I didn't even see them at the beginning. Yeah. At first it's just wide open spaces. It's, was <laughs> different from anything I'd ever lived in before. So, right. So you mentioned some of your past and, and touched a little bit on your, your upbringing. Mm-hmm. So what made you first decide to become a park ranger? Um, well, going on walks and talks with my dad. Yeah. Who was a, a ranger himself. He was a ranger himself. And uh, the kid moved around to a number of different parks in, in the country. And I would say probably, you know, between middle school and early high school, somewhere in there, I started telling my dad that I wanted to be a park ranger too. Okay. And he was always encouraging, but he said, you know, you, you might be able to do better. You know, you might not want to work for the government. Okay. And at the time, of course, I didn't understand what that meant to him. So that was kind of interesting commentary, but I'd always wanted to be a park ranger. And so, you know, my yeah. intention once I graduated. I wanted you to keep the options open, but. but yeah, you, you, well, you know, really like any, any parents, they're always going, you know, doctor, lawyer, you know, <laughs> something like that. But I was never interested in that. And I've always loved being outdoors and sharing that resource with other people. And, and uh, that's where I feel most comfortable. So, so I kind of shot for that. I had started out as a geology major and then transitioned into an anthropology major and uh, got an emphasis in Southwest archaeology and even got into some of the Southwest archaeoastronomy stuff. Archaeoastronomy. Yep. Okay. Yep. So it's, you know, astronomical orientation of physical architecture to, you know, rising positions of the moon, the sun at certain times of the year, Uh, particular stars, constellations, those types of things. So. Yeah, pyramids of Giza would be a good example in some respects, but you yeah. find that there's a lot of different cultures that obviously, obviously paid attention to the sky, and it was really their clock and their calendar, mm-hmm. and so they oriented their physical architecture to allow them to be able to tell what time of year it was, um, to trigger certain spiritual events, yeah. um, maybe you know tied to their religion, and so very interesting yeah, experience. Like a fascinating study. Yeah, going out and doing some survey on arc sites in the southwest for that. So you did a lot of that in your, your time as a park ranger working in those Southwest regions, Hoven Weep and, and mm-hmm. Mesa Verde. Mesa Verde. And, and, yeah. yeah. I mean, I really fell in love with that part of the, of the country. It's uh, that's really dynamic resource wise. You've got, you know, the mountains, you've got the canyons and mesas, and, and then you have that archeological aspect of people that had lived in that area for a thousand years and, you know, had flourished up to a certain point. And then all of a sudden kind of 
disappeared, so to speak, and moved off to other areas. Yeah. You know, there's so many different cool archaeological sites in the Southwest um, that really yeah. you could probably spend a lifetime looking for them mm-hmm. and enjoying them. So. so we've talked a little bit about you growing up kind of within the park system. Mm-hmm. Did you go to what, what you might call a traditional school or as you were moving around? I imagine you were moving around a bit with your, your dad. Yeah. Um, was I, there I, homeschooling involved? Or? Um, no. I'm, and, and so at that time, professionally, a lot of park rangers or people working in the park service would traditionally move every five to three years just to kind of progress professionally okay. and advance. And so that was pretty much the trend for the beginning of my life with, you know, with the park service as a kid. Mm-hmm. And so I almost predominantly did go to you know, to public schools, but my, as a kindergartner, um, I went to a pri- private school, um, in Hilo in Hawaii. And at oh. the time my dad worked for Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, okay. um, which is in the news quite a bit right now because of all the eruptions that are taking place. Yeah. And so, but the rest of it was all public school. I think that was probably one of the things I hated the most was move, up and move. Yeah. making friends and mm-hmm. then going to a new place, being the new kid on the block. That was a little bit rough, yeah, yeah, um, that's especially as a younger kid. Yeah. So moved to Cape Cod after Hawaii, mm-hmm. Cape Cod National Seashore. Okay. And lived in park housing just off of Marconi Beach and then moved to Rocky Mountain National Park for the last portion of uh, middle school and all of high school. Then as I mentioned before, college in Boulder. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things I like to say is that other than the, you know, the, the four plus years in college, um, I've spent every part of my life with a park as a backyard. So that's, pretty different <laughs> yeah yeah so it's very unique so how do you think all this growing up in the park service and moving around as you did shaped you as as a person well it obviously gave me a love for the outdoors you know some of my most favorite activities are things that have to do with you know hiking fishing boating kayaking yeah okay uh, those types of things uh, like i said before i think i feel a little bit more comfortable outdoors than i do indoors or definitely in a city yeah going to a city used to be a pretty big deal for me just because it was spooky. So going to Denver, even as a kid, was a crazy adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and now I'm more comfortable with it. And the fact that you have a GPS on your phone and you can say, you know, hey, Siri, tell me where such and such is. And then it'll guide <laughs> you to it. Just, you know, makes it a little easier to become more comfortable. And, but uh, yeah, it, it helped me to have a great appreciation of the outdoors, you know, the public lands that we have in this country and, and the value that they provide for people in different ways. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what shaped me to kind of continue in that direction and then have the opportunity to share that experience with others as a professional is a really gratifying experience. Yeah. And as you say, always having a, a national park in your backyard. Yeah. You know, my walk to work here is a two minute walk, three minute walk to work from my house to the visitor center. I live right behind here. Okay. You know, my commute to work over time has never been with a vehicle. It's always been by walking or riding my bike because mm. I've always lived close enough to my duty station to be able to do that. Yeah. So you know, my, my vehicles are, are for fun, mm-hmm. you know, and for traveling, they're not for commuting every day, which is different, yeah. you know, for a lot of people. Yeah. But I feel pretty lucky too, to have that opportunity, you know, to not spend so much time in a vehicle commuting to work, you know, walking to work, looking at saying, oh, wow, look, I live here. And sometimes <laughs> you forget, you know, but it's like coming to work this morning, you know, after all that rain and fog that we had, the Badlands are gorgeous. The yeah, grass the is turning green. Come out. It's, yeah, it's the sky is blue. You know, the birds are singing. It's, you know, it's pretty cool. It's my office. Yeah. You know, so. It has to be very invigorating. Mm-hmm. So you've had a few different positions here as a park ranger, right? Or, mm-hmm. Yeah. 
um, pretty much of the same vein. The only difference would really be supervisor versus being the you know non-supervisory position. Okay. Can you talk a bit more about what you've done in the past? Uh, I suppose leading up to this and up to to now. Well, so I've always been in interpretation, other than when I was at the Grand Canyon. Okay. One of the things that I always felt as an interpreter was that I wanted to be more than just an interpreter. I wanted to be more like a generalist kind of old school park ranger who did a little bit of everything. Ah. And, you know, I you know, I said Swiss army ranger to you last time I talked to you, you know, tool for every task kind of thing. Yeah. It's hard to do in some senses because I think some of the disciplines have become more specialized over the years. Um, but in addition to doing, you know, interpretive programs, ranger programs, I got into wildland fire. Mm -hmm. Um, I got into EMS, search and rescue, structure fire, um, became an EMT when I got here. And then also, you know, got exposed to a lot of the resource management aspects of, of, of managing, you know, this park in particular, uh, being involved with black-footed ferret surveys, being involved with the, the bison roundup and the bison management program. Yeah. Um, and then also the, you know, just the fossil resources within the park, going out with paleontologists and learning the resource in a, in a little bit more intense way that helps in turn kind of convey the resource message to the visitor and, right. uh, you know, share the experience and share the things that maybe they won't see, but at least they know they're out there. Yeah. You know, so. So in that way, you have kind of become a generalist. Right. Although the park service has changed since your father was in it, yeah. I suppose. But. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're definitely, there are, there are folks that are still trying to be kind of the more general ranger. Um, I think it's become a little bit more difficult just because of special specialization. Yeah. You know, another thing for me is age as well. You know, I get to a certain point, it's like, well, you know, how much longer are you going to do wildland fire? You know, yeah. and so, some of it has and to it do has with. Pretty uh, intense. Yeah, it, it can be. Um, some of it also has to do with just kind of where you place your value. You know, I ended up getting a dog a number of years ago and taking off and going flying around in a helicopter for fire. Yeah. It just wasn't realistic anymore. You know? Right. Now when you have a, a furry friend to yeah. watch over. Take care of. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, I spent, you know, once I came here and got into the wildland fire thing, especially, I really kind of, that was something that I got a rush out of. I really enjoyed it. Uh, super physical. It was extremely exciting. And uh, spent several seasons going down to Mesa Verde and working on their exclusive use contract for their helicopter for Helitac. Okay. And flying around in a helicopter, going to um, starts, you know, those types of things. So very kind of early in the process of what people would think about as a, as a wildland fire today, you know, that might threaten their homes. This yeah. is, you know, we're trying to prevent it from going anywhere before it really gets going. Yeah, catch and it early. That that transition there be, go, be of kind of straddling the edge of I'm going to be able to work with the resources I have and put this fire out and this fire is going to get away from us. We're going to need to pull back. We need to get more resources is mm -hmm. pretty intense. Does that involve kind of a, a snap decision pretty often? It does. I mean, there's yeah. definitely a, a prescription overall for mm -hmm. um, that type of programming. Um, you got to be pretty tight with your crew. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you follow the same types of procedures. There's lots of training involved. And, you know, safety first, lookout communication, escape routes and safety zones. Yeah. Um, you know, one foot in the black, a lot of different phrases that you utilize that kind of, you know, mentally help you to deal with the physical environment and prevent yourself from being injured or others being injured yeah. while trying to keep it to the smallest possible fire that you can. Yeah. Very thrilling. I did quite a bit of wild and fire on engines as well across the country on details. So it wasn't just aerial. No, it's a little bit of everything. Prescribed burning here in the park, um, okay. which we still do, which is a resource management tool for, you know, the, the mixed grass prairie. So you do that here at Badlands still mm -hmm. to this day? Yep. Yeah, we, we definitely try to use the, 
you know, prescribed fire as a management tool okay. and other parks as well. So, you know, when you're a collateral duty firefighter, as long as you're being supported by management and your supervisor, you have the opportunity to go out on not only big project fires that are threatening people's homes, but also going out on projects that are um, beneficial to the resource, prescribed fires in other parks and other right. places. Um, so, you know, over the years, got a lot of experience in that. Do you still fight fires or is your focus now more on the, the prescribed burns? And I'm a little closer to home now. Yeah. You know, part of it is I think, you know, I got bit by the fire bug and um, I would have, you know, done it all the time if I could have, Yeah. you know, and, and considered a fire job instead of a park ranger position. But mm -hmm. I almost feel like I've got the best of both worlds being that I can do it. Yeah, you have that option. Uh, and still do what I love, which is the interpretation, you know. Mm. Um, so I did so much of it that now I'm kind of like, mm, I can kick back. I'm not, yeah. not going to say that I wouldn't, I don't want to go out. I'm just, I'm not as eager. I also got into, um, here in Badlands, into uh, structure fire, oh. which is a completely different beast, you know, because you're running into the fire in a burning building. Yeah. Um, and, you know, fighting it from an enclosed space where, you know, Split second decisions can change the the fire itself and also the condition whether you're safe or not. And then, you know, wearing things like a self-contained breathing apparatus in a fire environment, being supported by an engine that's feeding you water that's a part of your lifeline uh, okay. um, is a different experience. Yeah, you talk about an adrenaline rush. Yeah, the... <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Wow. Mm -hmm. And we, the program that we had here, we don't have that program anymore. The structure fire yeah. Side of things. Okay. Yep. It's kind of been pushed off to the locals now. Uh, it's hard to maintain a brigade of people that you trust um, that can maintain their skill set um, when people are moving to different parks. They're here for a few years, then they're gone. Yeah. Um, so we got to the point where we were having a difficult time maintaining a positive brigade as a park ranger here at Badlands. And, you know, in addition to the structure fire, I've also had an opportunity to get my EMT certification, mm -hmm. um, and also become a part of the um, search and rescue uh, program here at Badlands. Okay, so and you got the EMT while you were here mm -hmm. at Badlands. I had to get it EMT with uh, within a year. Oh, okay. So it was part of my job basically was to get the the EMT certification. You know, because the resources out here are so few and far between, you mm -hmm. get involved with the search and rescue program because That's it's open hiking policy. So open hiking policy. Yeah. You know, and you look at the train and you'd think, well. Boy, there's going to be a lot of people getting hurt out here, and it's and because people are climbing all over the Badlands all the time. Yeah, um, and it does happen, but the frequency is a lot less than what I would have expected initially. Is it? Okay. Um, we get a lot of people that get butte rash, which is they tumble down a butte and they get a rash. Some of those can be pretty severe and need mm. stitches. Really? Okay. Um, but that's probably our most common injury and happens with fairly regular um, frequency. Mm -hmm. And many of those people just show up here at the visitor center. And we'll clean them up, bandage them so up. So it's not like they're out there stranded or incapacitated, but not, perhaps pretty heavily. Right. Not you know, that particular group, but mm -hmm. we do end up going out for um, broken legs, broken mm -hmm. ankles. Um, and that requires a, a larger group of people um, and, you know, stabilization of the patient. Sure. And, you know, being 80 miles from the best primary care facility, being in Rapid City, mm -hmm. time's of the essence. So life flight plays a pretty big role for us out here. Yeah. in transporting the really critical patients out of here, whether it be a search and rescue or a vehicle accident, heart patients, um, stroke patients, some cases even rattlesnake bites. Oh, yeah. So it just kind of depends. So, But the extreme ones really are those, that, those people that go out and get a little bit beyond their abilities and fall mm -hmm. and get you know seriously injured. And it doesn't happen that much, 
but it usually takes a pretty big team of people when it happens to yeah. get, get it done. Yeah, because if they're badly injured, as you say, very remote out here. So mm-hmm. those are the, the critical conditions. Yeah, so I would say those are the critical conditions where people have survived. That yeah, nearly okay. They've gone. And, you know, we don't always know what the end result of a, uh, a patient that we take care of um, is. Um, you know, some people will come back and, and, and let us know because they come back to the park because they didn't get to finish their vacation here. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times we never know really what happened to that patient. Okay. You know, and then there, there have been some instances out here where we've had fatalities in the park. Really? Um, and those, several of them were, were more suicide related. Um, but we've also had people that have died due to exposure or due to, you know, vehicular accidents uh, as well. So, yeah, yeah there's some sharp turns and mm-hmm. steep cliffs and yep. not always best conditions on the right, road, I imagine. Right. Yep. Yeah. So that's, whole thing changes in the dark. Yeah. You know? That has to be pretty pretty rough on that fatality side of things to to see that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But but as you say, on the flip side, the bulk of them are things like this butte rash that you mentioned, yeah. where people yeah. are just out there hiking. And yeah, kind of get people with allergic and, reactions to uh, yeah. bee stings and things like that. Occasionally, you get uh, stroke patients. Uh, I had a stroke patient last year that came in, and it was pretty obvious what was going on, and. It was going to be 30 minutes or better for an ambulance response. They were still ambulatory. Um, they had friends with them, and I made the judgment call to say, get in your car, drive to wall to the clinic. Mm-hmm. You'll be there in 25 minutes. You'll be at a better care facility at the same amount of time it would take for the ambulance just to get here. Right. And then if you better are to having... to make that progress towards yep. you know, better facilities. And, exactly. Yeah. And it ended up that they got him to the clinic and wall. The clinic and wall decided that the patient needed to go to Rapid City, mm. and they which were, is a good hour or probably so about from fifty-five Wall. miles or so. Yeah, close to an hour. And but. so they were flown from Wall to Rapid City and administered thrombolytics for a stroke. Mm. And um, he did well. He responded to the drugs. They came back out here about I don't know five six days later. So this is one of those cases mm-hmm. where they they came back to finish their mm-hmm. vacation and to specifically talk to me. Oh, so great. Yeah. So I imagine that's some of the most rewarding is knowing that you're making a difference in someone's life. Making the right decision right. as well. You yeah. know, I mean, there's a, a little bit of guessing involved in some respects to trying to figure out what the primary issue is with a patient, especially mm-hmm. if they're not completely aware. Right. You know, and internal injuries can be really dangerous and they're hard to diagnose. Um, medical to me are probably some of the more scary things. Some people love the medical stuff, but um, things like stroke. Yeah. So diagnosing is a challenge, but then also just proper treatment, depending mm-hmm. on, on what the diagnosis is. Right. It can be. Well, it's like with the rattlesnake bite, you know, yeah. you, you need the antivenom shot to counteract the venom and mm-hmm. also reduce the tissue damage. And the quicker you get it, the better the result is. Yeah. Uh, same thing with thrombolytics. It's three hours for stroke patients. They say the golden hour is the best. You know, if you can get a patient to a primary care facility within, you know, an hour, mm-hmm. you're doing good. Which in the case of this, this visitor that you mentioned, he made it. So we've talked about a lot of the jobs that you've done that have been challenging, rewarding. What's your favorite part about your current job? Well, I'd say part of it is just getting to work with a great team of people, you know, that are energetic about um, doing the job of uh, greeting visitors, uh, helping visitors learn about the resource, um, learning from them as well as them learning from you having a diversity of those people come and work here each year. Mm-hmm. We see some turnover, some more years more than others. Yeah. But I learn a lot from the staff that, that I work with. Um, you know, and I might be their supervisor, but 
I think they have as much to contribute to my professional experience as, as I do to theirs. Yeah. And so I find that to be one of the more exciting parts of my job, fun yeah. parts of my job, I guess you could say. And in that and sense, the, the turnover well. is, is welcome. Yeah, because you're getting new perspectives. Yep. It, yeah, and it's kind of a it's kind of a tough thing in some respects because if you have a lot of turnover, then you've got to do a lot of training. If you've got people that are returning as free hires, you start building this backbone of a team that's coming each year, and they have the opportunity to kind of build on the experience. And mm-hmm. you spend less time maybe with some of the the beginner stuff and mm-hmm. more time with moving beyond where we were last season. You know, right. of learning okay. about a particular resource or you know, making that program even better than it was before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you, you build a set of friends too. You know, these are people that you work with, but some of them are also your friends. Mm-hmm. And um, so I find that pretty rewarding. Yeah. And you live within walking, biking distance of here. So three you minutes, know, this is really your community. Right. Right. Yep. And so they live there too. You know, mm-hmm. we have a apartment complex that we call the quad and it has you know, depending on whether we use some of the houses, we might have anywhere from, say, 20 to 30 seasonals. Mm-hmm. Everybody kind of works together and then plays together, you know? Yeah. And so you build some pretty strong bonds. We have a we have a volleyball night every Wednesday night where a majority of the seasonals come out and even some of the locals from interior and okay. an opportunity for everybody to, um, you know, play some volleyball and socialize and mm-hmm. uh, get to know each other outside of work. And so, you know, there's not just park rangers here at Badlands and all the other parks. There's you know, there's maintenance staff, there's resource management staff. Right. Uh, the resource management staff might be wildlife biologists, uh, they could be ecologists, or they could be paleontologists or even geologists. You mm-hmm. know, and you've got the interpreters, you have law enforcement park rangers, um, you have administrative staff as well. Um, and so there's, you know, people are coming from different walks of life, different experiences. The summertime is a real rich social time for everybody here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. So you've experienced a lot of things within your career, what's one of your favorite things, uh, takeaways from your, your career thus far as a park ranger? You know, I, I think one of the things that I would, I would throw out there is another unique experience. It, and I, it is, it is a favorite in some ways. And it's, yeah. you know, it's kind of one of those top five things you did. <laughs> so the bison roundups that we do out here, um, are pretty interesting. Um, and you know, of course the, the, the benefit is to the resource itself, to the bison, um, but rounding up bison and putting them through a facility um, like you would cattle is a very different experience than oh, it would yeah. be with cows. Yeah, these are wild creatures. They're wild animals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they can run at 35, 45 miles an hour. They can spin on a dime. They're, they're up to a ton or more. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they, they each have their own personality and some are more willing to go with the herd and some aren't. And so it's, 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 it was, it's been every time I've done it. A very interesting experience to round up bison, put them through a processing facility, be a part of the the research associated with the genetics of bison, mm. um, and then also providing other tribes in the area the opportunity to either enhance their uh, their herds or start new ones with a, a almost pure uh, bison herd that we have here in Badlands. Okay, because there are domesticated bison being kept in surrounding areas but more wild ones here yeah so some bison actually have a certain amount of you know bovine right or cow gene in them maybe in some cases to maybe reduce some of that wildness or maybe to create immunity in some cases you yeah know, uh, those types of things but um, our bison are pretty pure and uh, that's probably one of the more memorable exciting fun thrilling exhilarating kind of experience that i've had because i you know as a park ranger i would never have thought that i would ever end up chasing bison across the countryside 
trying to herd them up to yeah. get them into a, a processing facility. Um, and, you know, we use a combination of different tools, whether it be pickup trucks or ATVs, as well as horses. This past year, we used a helicopter, which actually worked quite well. It was yeah. really interesting to see. It took a little bit for the animals to get headed in the right direction. And then once they did get headed in the right direction, they pretty much went where they were being. They wanted to stay away from that, that whirly bird up in the air. Yep. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And so it's a different thing as well. You know, when you're doing the roundup, you get to be closer to a bison than you would ever think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, part of what I do, I've done for quite a few years is to work the scale shoot. There's a series of crowder tubs and then shoots that you push the animals through with doors along the way that keep the, each of the individuals separated. Um, and the final two shoots, there's a scale shoot, which weighs the animal. And we also record the height of its shoulders. Mm. Um, and then the next shoot is a squeeze shoot. And that squeeze shoot is where the animal is, is squeezed with a uh, a shoot designed specifically for bison. We take a blood sample, we take a hair sample, we check its teeth um, for age, we check their sex, um, identify you know whether it's a yearling or a calf, uh, a bull or a cow. Mm-hmm. They put a pit tag in its ear, which allows us to track them again. If we see the animal next time, we can put a electronic tool over its ear and it'll tell us the animal and you know, some information. Data, yeah. mm-hmm. um, so being that close to the bison and they're not always happy, <laughs> yeah. There's a certain smell associated with the bison that is different. Yeah. That whenever I'm out and I smell it, I'm like, hey, there's bison around here somewhere. You know, I can smell it. It's kind of like with deer. You can smell deer too. And tell yeah. the difference between deer and elk and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, the Roundup is a pretty interesting thing. Mm. And I definitely say it's one of the more fun things I've done. Yeah, that does sound very interesting. Is that something that you, you only started to experience here at, at Badlands then? I had never done it before. Yeah. First time I got in a pickup truck with, with one of the old timers and started chasing bison across the countryside out by Sage Creek, I was, I was pinching myself. You know? <laughs> it's like, you know, experience I could never have imagined getting to do. And, and so it was pretty fun. Yeah. You know, and it's a rarity, you know, they out here, there's more common. They might find people that have done that, but yeah. I mean, across the country, you know, having the opportunity to be a part of that management program for bison is uh, pretty special. Very cool. You talked a little bit though about your, your paleontology background. The fossil, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what I was going to say on a personal level for me, um, and a professional level as well, is that you know I was a, when I was a kid, one of the things growing up and was I had a rock collection. It wasn't yeah. from the park, you know, and I had fossils, you know, and they were little bits and pieces of animals from long ago, and that was about as far as my mind went those days. But you know, to come here and be exposed to the paleontological resource in Badlands has been really super cool, yeah. um, and just really gives you a dis- different perspective on. You know how things in life have changed over over time um and you know what a treat and a pleasure it is to work with somebody like ed who knows the resource so well oh, yeah. that you can always learn something from him mm-hmm. you know um yeah, and he's so, very willing to share oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> talk your ear off for hours he's a great guy and very very knowledgeable so yeah. um but as far as archaeology mm-hmm. i just found it interesting you know mm-hmm. to be able to go out and you know people that don't have any training will often not quite see what's really out there. I mean, you have to learn to know what to look for. I mean, there's sure. archaeology is a connection, a human connection to people of the past and to sit in a place where you know somebody lived and probably died thousands of years ago or a thousand years ago um, is a human connection and a human experience. Mm-hmm. And to think about what they thought, you know, of the place that you're looking at, um, to think about how they lived and the struggles they had and the, you know, the relationships they had with, you know, people, their family, uh, other people in the area, how far they went, how big was their world? Yeah, You know, was this canyon that they lived in, in this Pueblo, their world? Or did they know that beyond that canyon was another canyon 
and a Mesa and beyond that Mesa, you know, were more Pueblos and more people. I think they did, but, you know, just kind of thinking about what their world looked like, you know, to them, you know. And we can draw a lot of connections via our own human experiences to what they likely experienced Mm -hmm. way back. Way back, yeah. Um, but archaeology is kind of the same way in some respects, too. You're looking for pieces of pottery. You're looking for lithic material, like an arrowhead or a scraper. Um, and, and just like you do with paleontology, once you find something like that, you might be able to source it back and find where it's coming from. Right. You might find the rest of the animal in the case of a fossil. Um, you might find the actual archaeological site um, where there was a, a home. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, it's just like what they do with tracing for gold. You know, if you're looking for a gold vein, you, you go back to the source, you follow it from the little flakes back to the bigger, to the vein, if you're yeah, lucky. Right. You know, so, but it's, uh, you know, it's almost a hobby for some people. So, sure. So speaking of hobbies, you've talked about a lot of your, your outdoors hobbies. And I'm wondering if there's a connection here in the Badlands, like what is, what is one of your favorite parts about Badlands National Park? You've been here for Well, it's probably what helped keep me here for longer than I would have expected. Um, I've been an avid fisherman since I was a kid. Yeah. And fished in some great places. And I'd always thought, you know, up until coming here, that Yellowstone was the fishing nirvana of experiences. Yeah. And, you know, every day after work when I was in Yellowstone, nobody would usually see me after work because I'd, I'd be jumping in my Nissan pickup truck and heading on out to one of the fishing spots to f- spend the rest of the evening catching fish till it got dark. Uh-huh. <laughs> and came here, and to my surprise, there are many, many stock dams in this area, and they're you know they're water catchment. They're mm-hmm. for the cows. Okay. Um, but over the years, they've been stocked um, with fish. Really. Okay. And so when I got here, we were at, the area was at kind of the tail end of a really, really wet span. So there was water everywhere. Every little pocket in the countryside had water and people would stock many of them. And so once I found this out, I started going out and, you know, taking, once again, taking my Nissan pickup truck as soon as I got off work and head out and go fish until it got dark. Here at Badlands Here as well. at Badlands yeah, as you well. wouldn't expect that. And you wouldn't expect that, no. And I mean, t- catching, um, you know, largemouth bass, some smallmouth bass, um, crappie, yellow perch, bluegills, some red ear sunfish, catfish, even one of the dams um, for a while had trout in it. So there was a real diversity out there. And I think, you know, one of the special things for me is that I learned a lot about the area resources by going fishing. I learned the birds, I learned the flowers, the plants, the aquatic resource that you don't see in the Badlands themselves. Um, And it was what allowed me to learn how to orient myself to the area and tell what direction I was looking, where I was going, that kind of thing. So it was that constant um, exposure to getting out there every day. Um, And it was because of my love of fishing. And uh, it wasn't just me going out by myself, but sometimes it was. But uh, great experience, kept me here for longer than I would have expected and you know over time the fishing kept you here the fishing nice okay and then I'd say the second thing is probably just the the fossils themselves and the exploration of the badlands looking mm-hmm. for fossils and you know there's nooks and crannies all over the park you know the the topography is changing subtly over a short period of time you know with about an inch of erosion per year you do see some changes in that but you also see exposures of fossils frequently as well and right you can go from one point where everything seems really easy and you turn a corner and all of a sudden things have gotten technical almost and you may not go any farther. There's little ephemeral caves that you find in the Badlands. There's special spots that might be great views 
or just a special place where you've got a grove of trees on a slump and you know you're sharing it with some bighorn sheep or you know something like that so you know exploring the badlands is probably the second thing that i you know enjoy the most and share with others and um, have done quite a bit of so so yeah exploring this this area it's a very dynamic sort of exploration Mm -hmm. isn't it Mm -hmm. yep you you can get to some pretty cool places just by you know either atv or four-wheeling and then you can go beyond there so i learned the area like the back of my hand, as some people say, <laughs> by going fishing and trying to find new fishing spots. Yeah. And I did that by a topo map and aerial photos. Wow, okay. And so I would find places based on that and go to them and see if they had fish in them. Mm-hmm. So some places people had told me about, but a lot of them I found on my own. Mm-hmm. Learned that later that people knew about them, but you know, some people don't give up secrets like that too quickly. Yeah. So. It was still your own exploration that, yeah. that led you there. Oh, yeah. Yep, definitely. And you've been here at the Badlands for a while. So what feelings come up when you think of the Badlands? What makes it special to you? Ah, peaceful, sense of solitude. I find every time I drive back from Denver, it's almost like a a weight has been lifted from my shoulders as I get into, you know, into Nebraska and the South Dakota prairie and the open spaces and, um, you know, just feeling like you can reach out. I don't know how to t- describe that completely, but just the openness of this area is something that really gets me Yeah. and feels good. And, you know, if I was ever to leave, that's probably something I would really miss. Just that, that open yeah. feeling. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Comfort, you know, it feels like a friend, you know, it's home. So we've talked about your, your lifelong career sort of in the park service mm-hmm. and how your dad was a park ranger. Do you think your dad would be proud of your career? Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah. You know, he wouldn't have expected me to stay as long as I have in one place here in the Badlands. But, you know, I think after moving so much as a, as a kid and then he's, even as an adult, as a seasonal, this is, I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else my entire life. Mm-hmm. So again, like I said, it feels like home. I certainly wouldn't have said that before I got here, but I always thought the mountains were my home and I still feel that, but it's different now. Both my parents are proud of what I've done and the life I've decided to choose as a professional. Mm -hmm. I feel lucky. I've had a lot of opportunities with this position. I've been as far as Saipan to do a detail um, at American Memorial, which is north of Guam a little bit, but it's part of the Marianas Islands. I've done details in other parks um, and of course fire, been all over the country with that. Right training courses across the country where I've met, you know, great people, not just from the park service, but from other, uh, you know, federal agencies and uh, public land management agencies. And, you know, being that it's a relatively cheap place to live um, and I don't have a lot of expenses, you know, I I have, I have my dog. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I have a lot of time to myself and I've been able to be financially uh, stable enough to go on adventures. And one of the things I do is I go on scuba diving trips. Oh, okay. And so recently, about actually about two weeks ago, I came, just got back from a scuba diving trip to Little Cayman. So my buddy and I try to go every year, if not every couple of years, somewhere to go scuba diving, whether it's in the Pacific or in the Caribbean. So that's something that gets me out there. I don't just stay here. I go other places too. And, right. And, you know, visit friends in the Southwest and in Colorado and this job provides me with the financial you know, ability to do that and um, still come back home and enjoy the job that I do. You know, and right. I know that's kind of a rare thing these days. There's a lot of people out there that don't like the jobs that they do, but it's, you know, 
it's a necessity, right? You know, or maybe limited on the opportunities that exist. So I feel pretty lucky to be able to do that. And I know, you know, both, both my dad and my uncle, who was also a park ranger, felt like they'd had a pretty satisfied professional career. You know, there are obstacles, but there aren't any jobs. But then at the same time, also providing the family, their families with that unique kind of experience of living in a national park mm-hmm. and calling it your own backyard. Right. Yeah, it sounds like a great wealth of experiences. <laughs> <laughs> so many that I don't always remember all of them until something triggers it, you know? <laughs> so what is the importance of the national park system as a whole? It's been a lifelong career for you. Well, it's to preserve and protect the resources of this nation. And those resources can be almost anything that the American public places value on. Right. You know, there's cultural, there's historical, there's the, you know, the natural resources. Um, they're, they're all there, spiritual as well in mm-hmm. some cases. But it's to preserve and protect those resources for, you know, the enjoyment and benefit, as they say, of all people. And um, to preserve those resources for the future generations that will come. Right. Who will also get an opportunity, as long as we are good caretakers, an opportunity to enjoy the same place that we enjoy as well. And to be a part of that to me is really special and it it places a a value on it that I don't think is a small thing. And so, you know, of course they say, you know, there's the knowledge that out there, um, these special places exist, whether or not we make it to all of them, but just the fact that we know they're there is special and important and, you know, has value as well. So I know I will never get to all 417 park (laughs) sites in my career. So I envy you guys being able to do that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that's really cool. That's a, that's an awesome adventure and you will get a really good slice of life, you know, in American life by going through these different, you know, special places that have been set aside. Right. So that's cool. And there's some pretty obscure ones out there. There are. I'd be interested to hear what your logistics for an Alaskan trip is going to be like. Yeah, that'll be an interesting <laughs> challenge for sure. <laughs> yeah. May not bring our RV up there. Well, and at some point in time, you will obviously get a chance to, to see American Memorial for yourself. Mm-hmm. And of course, War in the Pacific and all of that. And those are, those are monster trips. It's definitely a different place, you know, and the, uh, the history that those places preserve is a, a very powerful one. Yeah. And it's very different from going to a natural resource park. Right. But it's, it, it's no less important. It's no less important to be told as a story um, of the nation. Mm-hmm. So. At the beginning of this interview, we mentioned that being a park ranger is a different lifestyle. And after interviewing many rangers, Sarah and I find we relate quite a bit more than we thought to their lives. We're full-time RVers traveling to all 400-plus national park units to bring this show to you. And the nomadic lifestyle has its difficulties, as many park rangers can probably relate. RVers have their own RV culture, much like park rangers have park ranger culture. Moving around can make it difficult to form friendships, but we have RVer friends on the road. And through discussions with park rangers, their friends tend to be ranger friends. So why do we do it? Because we get to see beautiful places, live unique experiences, and learn amazing things. And I think that's something our park ranger friends can definitely agree with. If you enjoyed what you heard, review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider to help us improve the show. For more behind-the-scenes and bonus episodes, join our Patreon community. As little as $2 a month gains you access to our community. A link is posted in our show notes or visit podcastswithparkrangers.com. 
Stay with us through the final minutes for a short preview of our next episode. We like to highlight on our show ways that a typical park visitor can give back to their national parks. At Badlands National Park and many other national parks, they have an artist-in-residence program. Artists can express their connection to the resource through their medium of work while living in the national park for a month and a half. They get access to housing and the park, and in return they provide educational programming in the local schools and donate one of the pieces of artwork they created to the park to be added to the National Park's collection. To learn more, visit the Badlands National Park website for more info. Even though we interview park rangers, we are not affiliated with the National Park Service, and any views expressed are not necessarily those of the Park Service. We're just fans of the National Parks, like you. Coming up in episode 15 of Podcasts with Park Rangers, we visit an American icon, Mount Rushmore. The captivating story of how four presidential faces are carved into the side of a mountain in South Dakota is full of complications and controversy, some of which still exists today. Join us on a wild ride through history as we interview Ranger Maureen McGee Ballinger at Mount Rushmore National Memorial. <laughs>